is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. A serial killer is on the loose in California, specifically up north in Stockton, where police say six murders since April of last year appear to be committed by the same person. We'll go in-depth into the mind of a serial killer and what motivates them to kill. California seems to have energy problems. First, it was the possibility of heat-related power outages. And now we have record gas prices due uh, because of issues that exist only here. And Angelina Jolie is making new claims of domestic violence and abuse against Brad Pitt. Former President Trump is suing CNN. We'll go in-depth into whether he actually has a legitimate defamation case to make. A professor in New York fired after students complained that his class was too hard. If you like spam, we have a canned treat for you. It's getting more popular uh, every year. And we on the show would look back at the life of country music legend Loretta Lynn, who died today at the age of 90. Have you ever had spam? I have, yeah. And? You know, it's good in a, a musubi with the rice and the, the oh. seaweed wrap. Oh, that's yeah, fancy. Which are great yeah, to really? take for like... Like to the beach or yeah. for hiking, like that's the ultimate like yeah, but spam you, treat. Now. But have you ever had it just like no, right had, out of the can? No, not right out of the can. No. Just a, you know, I mean, a lot of people all over the world they really like that. Do you know what it stands for? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Well, we'll reveal should we that tell later. people? We'll no. reveal that later on. Yeah. yeah. But there's a reason why it's called ahead to something spam. You know, we're going to talk about uh, what's happening up in, in Stocks in the Central Valley in, in just a minute. Here, we're hoping to get this uh, professor from from Cal State Long Beach online with us, a criminal justice professor. But one reason that I think a lot of people are paying attention to this, other than you know, five people have been killed, which is terrible, um, is just the phrase "serial killer." Because we were talking in the newsroom, and, and there's been a lot made of this recently that. There don't seem to be as many serial killers as there used to be. And actually, and the presser can probably enlighten us a little bit about this, but they're getting caught quicker and they don't make it to that point, um, basically. You know, people will kill one or two people and they can't get to three or four or five. But in this case, they think that they do have someone up there in the Central Valley. Yeah, and, and, and of course, uh, there's also media attention has, as you know, in the past few uh, years, is really focused on we, we may not have uh, that many serial killers but we certainly have no shortage unfortunately of mass killers uh and and that has really taken the focus uh the attention away from anything else i suspect yeah and up there in in uh, stockton and, and oakland they think they've, they've linked one to this too it's it's they don't have a lot to go on i mean the police officers are talking they say there's a fuzzy photo from a surveillance camera from, from two of these scenes, and then maybe some ballistics evidence, but they think um, at least these string of cases, a few shootings, five people dead and a six-person injured are, are all related in, in some way. Well, and the thing, too, that, that is scary about serial killers, of course, is that, you know, in most cases, contrary to movies and, and television shows, most people who are victims of, 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 uh, of a killer are actually known to them. They're, they're not, you know, sort of anonymous right. people. They're people who are in relationships, that sort of thing. And, and the thing that's particularly shocking about serial killers, and we can run this by the uh, professor when we get them, is that uh, it is a, you know, the, it's strangers. You know, yeah. somebody that walks up to you on the street or something like that and, and commits the crime. Uh, we are now joined by Robert... Shug, who's a criminal justice professor at Cal State Long Beach. He's a neurocriminologist 
and forensic psychologist. He studies the mindset and thinking process of serial killers and multiple homicide offenders. Thanks for being with us. Before you joined us, I, I was in the process of saying that one of the things, among many, that makes serial killers uh, particularly uh, horrifying is that, I guess in most cases, the victims don't know these people, right? Whereas most crime is committed among people that know one another. This is this tends to be a crime with a total stranger killing another total stranger. Am I right about that? I think it certainly can be in that we've definitely seen that in the past. I think what's even more perhaps horrifying you say, is that these people uh monsters walking down the street, you know, drooling and and whatnot. They look just like the rest of us, generally speaking. And so it literally could be, you know, anyone, any, really anyone. And, and I think that's probably the scariest part to most people. We were also remarking earlier how there seem to be fewer now, or at least uh, high profile. There are, there are mass killings, there are mass shooters, but when it comes to serial killers, do they get caught faster now before they get to that point? It's a great question. I think with technology, we, we can really sort of revisit the way we're investigating these crimes. And yes, the mass shootings, I think, did take center stage for a while. But I would speculate that these guys have always kind of, you know, I just think that they didn't uh, receive any real sort of media attention. And I think uh, now we're sort of seeing it again, and it kind of reignites this uh uh, concern, if you will, or fear about them, and, and, and kind of, and, and along with the fact that you know some of the, the major network TV, television programs are sort of highlighting some old famous cases. So I think it, it really does all play together and, and makes us realize that yes, it's still happening. It is an interesting topic, and hopefully we will in the near future revisit it and maybe with uh, the well, hopefully professor we'll be reporting that they caught the guy. Right now, though, uh, Southern California is seeing record gas prices. It's not because of what's happening with OPEC or the rest of the country. It's because of so-called refinery problems here. Now, this comes after we were all worried about rolling blackouts due to the possibility of the electric grid failing during the recent long heat wave. So why is California struggling when it comes to energy? Sean Hyatt is an energy sector expert, professor of management and organization at the USC Marshall School of Business. Sean, thanks for being with us. So why are we always, it seems to be anyway, uh, in recent years, struggling with all types of energy? Why us? Uh, Well, we're in the midst of this experiment in the state of California called the energy transition, um, which in which the, you know, the legislature and wants to move everybody off of carbon-intensive energy sources, which include petroleum fuels, and on to electricity. Um, but by doing so, right, this causes constriction in the market. Refineries close because they don't see an avenue for continuing operations, investing, and keeping their old refineries running. And that's what we have today. Just over the last five years, we've had four refineries close in the state of California which produced enough fuel per day to fuel about 4 million cars. So right now we're in this delicate balance where we're barely producing enough fuel for the demand. And so right now, if one or more, a couple refineries go out to do their maintenance, their annual maintenance, it's going to create a shock in the marketplace. The prices are going to jump because there's just not enough fuel for the demand. So fewer refineries, and of course, we have our own California gas blends, so we are an island, so we depend on those. But why do they all seem to go down for maintenance always at the exact same time? 
There are generally two times of the year where they do this. It's generally when they switch from uh, winter to spring fuel. It's a nice time to do it. And they also try to time it when it's not during the heavy traffic areas. So prior to the summer, um, like Memorial Day is so, when traffic picks up, and always after Labor Day when traffic generally goes down. So it's not a, 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 I, I don't believe there's any type of collusion going on. In fact, if you look of the remaining 14 or so refiners that we have in California, the majority of them are owned, um, or companies own majority of them, meaning they have like four, three to four refineries. Valero has four, PBF has a couple. These companies are going to make sure that they're keeping the other, they're gonna stagger this maintenance, right? So there's, there's some coordination going on here just because it's not like one independent refinery making its own decision. They're actually owned just by like a handful of companies. Do you then not buy Governor Newsom's comment the other day where he effectively said that we are all being played, probably as fools, by the oil industry? Uh, no. This is a complete market issue caused by the policies of the state of California. I mean, anyone can understand this, right? We've got fewer refineries producing less fuel, and when they have to do their maintenance, which, by the way, both the governor Newsom and President Biden asked the refineries to go full tilt after February and to avoid their spring maintenance so that they could provide enough fuel for everybody when fuel prices went up. Well, because a lot of these deferred their maintenance, they have to do it now. If not, here's what happens. You have explosions. People get hurt. Maybe they get killed. And when these explosions happen, they could be out for a full month or more. So that would cause even a greater shock. So this is a smart, this is an usual thing that refineries do. Um, and, you know, they, they need to make these repairs. Do we expect more to be closing as we as we move ahead? Or is it kind of like, well, they know that they have to keep these open, at least to supply the gas cars until we make the changes. And until then, we've got to deal with these like self-imposed growing pains. Uh, yes, unfortunately, there are already refineries who have said and made plans for switching to, say, biofuels and shutting down over the next three years, by 2023, 2024. Um, one of the things by moving from fossil fuels to biofuels is that these uh, biofuels generally cost quite a bit more because we're, we're running from vegetable oil and animal fats. And the other issue with that is that it drops the capacity, usually on average, by about um, to about 25 or 20 percent of what they were able to produce before. So like a very large refinery, let's just take the El Segundo refinery and um, Chevron's El Segundo and, and El Segundo. If it were to switch to biofuels, it could drop its production from, you know, over 270,000 barrels a day to about 80,000 barrels a day just because there's just not enough animal fats and uh, you know vegetable oils <laughs> to produce enough fuel so that is the future I think we to expect you know higher volatility higher prices in the oil market unless you know unless they allow for changes for imported fuels from other states um, that's going to require also some federal laws because of the Jones Act it's going to be hard we don't have pipelines for these refined fuels to come to California they have to come by boat or by rail Sean Hyatt there, energy sector expert, professor of management at the USC Marshall School of Business. Coming up, if you like spam, keep listening because we're going to talk about why so many people like it, except me. And if you hate it, <laughs> I'm in that camp, you're going to find out why so many people like it. And we remember. And we remember the life and legacy of country music legend Loretta Lynn. She died today, 
at the age of 90. Right now, though, Angelina Jolie making allegations of abuse against ex-husband Brad Pitt in a new court complaint. She claims in September of 2016, Pitt choked one of her children, hit another in the face, then grabbed Jolie by the head and shook her. Chris Melcher, celebrity divorce lawyer, is with us now. Um, Chris, thanks for being here. So, yeah, we've heard some of this because we got reports of what apparently happened on this this private jet flight. But 2016, that's five, six years ago now. So this has been dragging on for a while. That's right, Mike. And and the allegations are not being made in the divorce case. It's regarding a dispute over Angelina's sale of uh, her half of a winery business that they had together. And it looks like she's just using this lawsuit that they have over the winery as an excuse to rehash these allegations that she made six years ago. Why is the public so fascinated? And I think they are, at least segments of the public are, in these sort of issues between celebrities. I mean, this kind of stuff happens, I, sadly, for all kinds of couples. But why do people get fascinated and hooked on celebrities in, in this way? Well, Charles, I think it's because we, 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 we put these people on a pedestal, they're role models, and, and we kind of think that they don't have the rest of the problems that we have. Uh, but they do. Now, most celebrities are sensible enough to resolve their disputes quickly. And I, I uh, find myself resolving celeb divorce cases within months uh, rather than other divorces could go on for a year or two because this exposure is toxic to their brand and reputation. Uh, so this is remarkable that there would be this level of fighting for this long and then to have two major celebs going at it. When they when they come in, you know, the, the, the celebrities, is that already kind of on their minds like okay let's just try and keep this as quiet as possible people are going to know headlines are going to be written but like it could be way worse if if everything gets out and we start airing all the laundry that's right mike and it's it's well integrated with the legal strategy to have a pr team involved because the uh, the spread of news uh, especially over social media is so rapid um, that people will speculate and so it's good to get ahead of the story to figure out what is this message and to resolve things quietly as possible. But then there are times when the couple can't agree, especially on important things like custody, and they'll have to go to court. But if they're sensible about it, they can get that message out there and go to court in a public proceeding without damaging their brand. I'm guessing celebrities kind of wish for the days long time ago when when big movie studios would control pretty much the flow of news and if celebrities had domestic issues nobody ever was the wiser yeah it is remarkable how that has changed and and some will use these opportunities to exploit this message that they want and and I do think we see a little bit of a flavor of that here in this case, because this document that we're talking about, I believe, was was leaked. It's not publicly available on the L.A. Superior Court site. So how you know, do do I and other people in the media have it? So um, you, normally you would want to keep this quiet. But then we see some people actually going and promoting these stories about themselves. Yeah. When was the last time you saw something like this where, you know, the allegations from what would be the divorce case are now being used in a business case saying, hey, let me off the hook. I sold the end of the winery and maybe there were all these different ways I was supposed to do it. But I don't want the business partnership with this guy because look what I say he did, you know, physically to me in the relationship. This is really odd because there's no logical connection between whatever happened on that plane in 2016 
and the reason why Angelina has sold her half of this Miraval winery business to this other um, purchaser. And so it was gratuitous to put it into her lawsuit. Um, she claims that she has the legal right to sell her half, and that may be so. But um, the personal dispute between Brad and Angelina from so long ago is irrelevant. Chris Melcher there, celebrity divorce lawyer. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. CNN being sued by former President Trump. He's claiming defamation, seeking $475 million in damages. And so with us is Jessica Galani, who is a media studies professor at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, Greensburg, and a researcher at the Pitt Disinformation Lab. Jessica, thanks for being with us. So uh, I guess when it comes to former President Trump, nothing should be surprising and nothing should be considered unique. But it does seem to be both surprising and unique that a former president would be suing a major media outlet for, what, $475 million? Yes, I think it is very surprising in in that regard, because it is the job of our free and open press to cover our government and our public leaders and our public officials. And while former President Trump has not declared that he will run for election in 2024, he certainly has not stopped fundraising on the prospect of that. He certainly has not stopped holding rallies. So I think, you know, reporting on him is still fair game. Um, What is most striking to me about this is I'm not a legal expert, but I have read from legal experts that it doesn't seem to have a lot of uh, potential to actually win. So it's almost like a warning shot to other media companies and um, reporters and also a potential way of energizing his base and fundraising. Yeah, and it's focusing primarily on that term that that a lot of outlets have used, the big lie about the false claims of, of the widespread fraud. So she's saying that that's, that's, you know, libelous and slanderous and all sorts of things. But you can say, you know, I'm going to sue you for saying this for me. But then to your point, he gets on stage the next weekend and says, you know, that election was stolen from me. So where's there's no those things do not go together. Yes, Absolutely. The phrase, the big lie, is at the center of this legal filing, but CNN is not responsible for having coined that phrase. That phrase has been used quite a lot by a number of different public figures, as well as media outlets, and notably was very present during the second impeachment trial in January of 2021. So to try to kind of pin it on CNN does make it seem as though it's it's just an example of trying to kind of get a news cycle and rile up the people who are big supporters and go after a media source that has been, you know, that he's vilified for a very long time. So as part of the strategy, do you think on the part of Mr. Trump that you get your opponent, in this case, CNN, to spend a lot of money and time uh, and and exhaust a little bit of their their legal efforts, of, of which CNN has many, but is the idea to kind of do that to make it a nuisance? Uh, but to your point earlier, to send a signal to perhaps smaller and less uh, well-financed media outlets to beware because, you know, I could slap you guys with a suit, too, and you may not be able to afford two years of litigation. Yes, I think one of the most remarkable things about this is that he went after one of the big guys. The CNN has the legal chops to be able to fight this. And yes, it could be 
a frivolous, time-consuming, resource-wasting thing, but they still are big enough that they certainly have the ability to, you know, do a decent job standing up for themselves, whereas smaller outlets certainly won't. And I think that the broader reverberation of this could be a chilling effect on free speech, on our our realm of journalism's ability to be able to report openly about this kind of topic. You mentioned this earlier, but you're in this field, media studies, so I'm sure you watch some of these tweets. You know, how often do you see a big headline come out about some move or some statement that uh, some politicians making and then you wait, I don't know, maybe an hour and then there comes a fundraising email? Oh, yes. I mean, it is it's it feels as though it's tailor made for fundraising. And I, I feel like nothing is sacred in terms of what won't be fundraised about. So I definitely think that this has fundraising opportunities written all over it for not only the Trump campaign, but also maybe the broader GOP. Well, does it also, you know, you were talking about sending a message to other to other media. It also, I suppose, sends a message, and that goes to the the point about fundraising, to his supporters, right? Because it's sort of Trump trying to say, see, I'm standing up to the big bad media that's spreading lies about me. Oh, yes. I mean, I, I think it is in many ways a, a great exemplification of the strongman metaphor that he kind of likes to project to his biggest supporters that he is a tough guy, that he will stand up for himself, that he's the only one who can hold our, you know, the swamp or our corrupt media to account. And uh, this falls within that narrative so nicely. Jessica Galani, media studies professor, University of Pittsburgh, Greensburg, researcher at the Pitt Disinformation Lab. It's fair to say that pretty much everyone has an opinion on spam. I certainly do. No, we're not talking about junk email because everybody hates that. We're talking about spam, the canned meat. While some people think it's gross, there are many, many others who just cannot get enough of it. Spam's been on a comeback. Hormel has sold a record amount for seven straight years. They're going to do it again this year, they think. Uh, who's buying it? What are they making with it? Robert Koo, professor of Asian and Asian American Studies, Binghamton University, and author of Dubious Gastronomy, Eating Asian in the USA. Professor, thanks for being here. So quite the, uh, what, reputation makeover for the uh, little can of meat? Yeah. Um, hi. Hi. Um, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, reputation makeover. I'm not sure if that's quite accurate because among like my cohorts, it was never a, you know, a item that had low reputation. And so it just may be that there have been always or for a long time, a group of people around the world, mainly the Pacific Asia region, who for whom uh, spam had been, you know, a really prized uh, possession. And then, however, there are maybe others, um, perhaps the most sort of mainstream Americans and others who, you know, for a long time saw it as something ridiculous, right? So, yes, it's partly true, maybe, because among my cohort was never a bad reputation. But I think now others are coming who thought it was silly and ridiculous are not coming to see the way we see it. Well, all right. So I'm making no secret of the fact that I tried it once. And I didn't like it. I didn't like that it was in this little tiny can. It made me suspicious. I didn't like. I didn't like the look of it. I didn't like Why the taste. Why is the meat in the can? That yeah, was the trouble. Like, okay. and, and and since when does meat hang out in a can for like years at a time? So what is it that people like me uh, are missing about spam? Help me out. 
Well, first of all, there's nothing wrong with food in a can. Canned foods have been been around for you know generations. I don't eat Meat those either. Been, <laughs> you mean tuna fish? You're not a big fan of tuna, tuna over there. I was just gonna say, yeah, tuna. Um, well, maybe you're a food snob, but uh, um, but if you look at the spam uh, can and the ingredients, it's actually quite wholesome. If you however you define it, because it's basically pork, salt, um, some sodium nitrite. And that might be it. Um, so, so people talk about spam as frankenfood, as mystery meat. I think that's all undeserved uh, bad press. There are far and worse I things think, out there for you than spam. Oh, oh, absolutely. And um, you know, it's no. I don't think it's any different from hot, hot dogs or cold cuts. Mm-hmm. People right? eat plenty of those. What What do you do with it? What is easy to do with it? Top of the show when we were talking about this, I said, "Oh, uh, musubi. That's right where my my brain goes." perfectly easy to take on a hike, take to the beach, anything like that. Right. Certainly span musubi, which is musubi would be a sort of a rice, like a sushi style rice molded into a little square block with, you know, spam that's been cooked, fried with little teriyaki sauce wrapped in nori. That's been a standard sort of a snack um, and quick meal. Sort of the, the in New York City, that's the equivalent of like a slice of, slice of pizza. In Hawaii for generations. I grew up in Hawaii. And I was born in Korea. And it just happens that the two places, Korea and Hawaii, is among the top leaders in the world in terms of per capita spam consumption. And so spam is in my blood, right? And so for me, spam is um I grew up grew up with it in lots of different kinds of foods, and still I cook with it quite a bit. As Korean, uh, as a Korean sort of uh, food goes. The most classic way is with kimchi, to make kimchi stew. I don't know if you ever had kimchi stew, kimchi jjigae. Spam is the ideal uh, accompaniment because pork and kimchi is a great combination. If you go to Korean barbecue to eat like pork belly that grows on the tabletop, you have the kimchi as pancha on the side. Put a you know put some kimchi on the grill, eat it with the pork belly. And it is like amazing, right? But, Robert, so, but, but, but I'm curious though, Robert, because yeah. I, I mean, one of the reasons why Spam lasts so long in that can, uh, other than the fact that it's sealed pretty tightly, is because it has a huge sodium content, right? It's really salty. How is that healthy for you? Well, salt is salty. You don't put salt in your food? I mean, not not an know, entire it's, can, it's, no. <laughs> well, but you know who the eats that kind of spam, right? <laughs> I mean, if you're worried about sodium content in your food, you can reduce sodium other ways. But salt, but spam is just one product. In fact, well, you know, I don't really mind overly salted food. In fact, a lot of Korean food is overly salted because that's the way it is. Because we eat oftentimes with white rice. Rice is a neutral. I mean, rice has great flavors too, great taste. So I'm not saying the rice has flavorless, but it is a neutral palate. And for many people of Asian background or people who eat rice a lot, you need something salty, bold, hot, spicy to go with the rice. And so I think the pairing of the rice with something salty is a it's magic. And so spam just happens to, for particular historical reasons, spam took a hold in certain cuisines. And often it's paired with rice. 
do the spam people know they've got something now because they 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 know they've been selling out for for seven years and people are interested and more people are interested because i have seen people on tiktok cooking with spam like i bet you had no idea what you could do with spam like this is now a thing on social media yeah those are the new arrivals to the spam uh to, to spam love um you know, there's a museum in Austin, Minnesota, where the Spam Factory is located, the Hormel Spam Factory is located. There's an entire museum dedicated to Spam because, you know, oftentimes that's what happens with these corporate products. When it gets really famous, they make museums out of them. <laughs> Anyhow, during the exhibit, you'll see a whole like global dimension of Spam and the global outreach. Spam is even popular in Muslim countries. Not because they're suddenly eating pork, but because Hormel knows that they can sell it if they make it with, say, turkey meat, right? So there are alternative spams for all kinds of uh, audiences. Um, and Hawaii, Okinawa, Guam, the Philippines, uh, Korea, I would say are the top countries or co- top locations of the world where spam is really a, a part of like mainstream you know, uh, food. Robert Koo, professor of Asian and Asian American studies at Binghamton University. Dubious gastronomy, eating Asian in the USA. That's the book. We were going to tell people before why it's called spam. Oh yeah, it's the spiced ham, right? Right. It was they were at a party and they were trying to think of a name, and then that's what it, that's what happened. Are you going to try this now? No, I'd rather ha- I'd rather re- I mean, if I had a choice between yeah. like spam and something else, I think I would go for like a catered dinner from Spago. <laughs> yeah, <well>, elitist. <laughs> <laughs> More in depths coming up. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Felt. College can be hard, especially if you take certain classes. Students were struggling in an organic chemistry class at New York University. Several dozen signed a petition against a professor, Maitland Jones, even though he's received awards for his teaching. The students claimed the course, which is needed for medical school, was just too hard. The university ended up firing the professor. Did the university cater to the students too much here? Kent Kirschenbaum is a chemistry professor at NYU. Kent, thanks for being with us. So to, to sort of cut to the chase, is that what this is about? Is this about students becoming so soft uh, that when they fail to do the work or can't do the work or fail at doing the work, they blame the teacher and then the university fires the teacher? Is that what this boils down to? Well, that's certainly part of the issue, but I think it's part of a larger question about how we're going to be responding to students when they encounter difficulty, when they find challenges in the classroom. You know, the good news is that students are back in the classroom, but we really need to figure out, um, you know, how to respond to them when they get into trouble. And we can't pretend as though everything has gone back to normal. So same school, did you know this professor and, and did he have the reputation of being a really tough professor? He was for sure old school in the best sense of that term. Um, He was a highly regarded faculty member at Princeton University for decades, and he literally wrote the book on organic chemistry. Um, That is not just an expression. He did exactly that. Uh, And after teaching and being a highly regarded professor at Princeton, he joined our faculty at NYU, and he was a really great colleague, and I was glad to know him. A few years ago, I was teaching at USC, and I I remember to this day the then chairperson of the department that I was attached to telling me in no uncertain terms that the students are 
customers. That's a quote, that they're customers and that the university wants happy customers. Is that what this is about? This cuts right to the heart of what we need to, to tackle with. And we have to figure out better ways of responding to students who are struggling. You know, in the best case, this becomes a rapport between an instructor and a student, a meeting of the minds. And in the worst case, this becomes a customer service issue. And we need a customer service response on behalf of the university administration to ensure a continuing revenue stream. And I, I think we can do a lot better than that. How do you actually figure out if a class is, quote unquote, too difficult? Like the teacher will always say, well, you guys didn't study, like do the work and then pass the test. But the students will say, well, the way you wrote that question had seven different tricks up its sleeve. And like, there's no way that any of us are actually going to find the answer here. Yeah, I think um, as colleagues, we can help each other out. We can sit in each other's classrooms. We can look at each other's exams. We can uh, participate when students begin to encounter problems or, or when the administration begins to hear these issues come up. There are some classes that are just intrinsically really hard. And, and I'm going to be honest and share a secret with you. Um, I struggled with organic chemistry myself when I first took it in college. It's a tough class. The issue should not be like, why are students encountering difficulty? Um, because there are just some topics that students are going to find challenging year after year. And I think the thing that, that maybe bothers some people about this whole thing is that, you know, this particular course, uh, Organic Chemistry, as you know, is really instrumental, as we mentioned at the top, in uh, somebody wanting to become a physician, say, down the road. And so if all along the way, if universities, it seems to me, keep bending to make it easier and easier so that students, customers, are happy in the end, what kind of doctors do we end up with a few years from now? Yeah, I think there's a fascinating debate about whether or not practicing clinicians, physicians really do need to be like up to date on organic chemistry and synthetic techniques. But it is for sure a critical enabling knowledge base because you need this information to be able to understand biochemistry. You need to be able to understand the molecular responses that go on in living systems and discriminate between healthy and disease states. So this is a really crucial topic, um, but it doesn't mean that it needs to be a weeder subject. And I think that that's another unfortunate aspect about organic chemistry, that it's gotten the reputation that this needs to be the class that's going to separate those who are going to succeed from those who just aren't going to cut it. It doesn't need to be that kind of class. Uh, and I think it can be highly regarded and taught as an important topic in and of itself, apart from its relevance to you know, medical school, but certainly as an enabling knowledge base for a variety of different um, professional careers. Ken Kirschenbaum, chemistry professor, NYU. 
An icon in the country music world has died. Loretta Lynn was 90 when she passed away earlier today at her home in Tennessee. Known for coal miner's daughter, You Ain't Woman Enough, the pill often sang about her experiences as a woman and mother in Appalachia has been an inspiration for many female country performers. With us now, Katie Neal, host of Katie and Company, syndicated nationally across our country music stations, owned by Odyssey. Katie, thanks for being here. So this definitely feels like one of those you won't see them again kind of things. I mean, people with great careers now can be 20, 30 years. She was the queen for what? 70 and performed into her 80s? Yeah, it really, first of all, thank you, Mike Charles. Thank you for having me. But it really is one of those things where you think, will we ever have another Loretta Lynn ever again? Someone who, you know, had 51 top 10 hits. She toured for almost, I believe, 57 years, which is just, it's truly an incredible career. And she also released her 46th album just last year in 2021. Wasn't it the case that her songs, her lyrics really spoke to women in a way that other songs did not, especially when you're talking about, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s? Oh, yes, for sure. And especially when you think about the things that she was singing about, there weren't a lot of a lot of time, you know, women in the 70s that were talking to women who were stay at home mothers and especially singing about the things that she was singing about songs like divorce and how unfair that was for women like rated X or songs about birth control, like the pill. People weren't talking about these things. And it's like President Obama said when he presented her with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, she gave voice to a generation singing what no one wanted to talk about. There was a quote, you know, I wasn't the first woman in country music. I was the first one to stand up and say what I thought, you know, and what life was about and speak about these experiences. Was that the secret? You know, because you go far back enough and, and country music was pretty conservative. And here she was and she some of these songs couldn't make the radio. They said, oh, no, you can't play that. But real people, real women said, well, I've experienced this and she has, too. And she's singing about it. Exactly. And I think, you know, that was part of the thing that made Loretta so amazing is that she showed up and she said, I'm going to write songs that are true to me and about my life and you can take it or leave it. And the music business had no choice but to take it because it resonated with so many women at the time. Would she be considered a, uh, to some degree, a crossover artist uh, or was her music, in your view, sort of pigeonholed strictly as country? You know, I believe she had some success in the pop world. She really was a trailblazer, though. You know, she re- like I believe that her music affected so many people. And I think that that's what makes her legacy so amazing is, you know, not just the music that she leaves behind, but the path that she paved for the women of country music. Like when you think of a trailblazing artist today, like Shania Twain, who is a massive crossover artist in country and pop. Shania said herself today, she was like, Shania Twain does not exist without Loretta Lynn. Yeah, I was going to say, what are some of the other reactions you've seen out there from from the big names that that we know who who credit a lot back to her. You know, it's really been so heartwarming just seeing stars like Reba share stories about Loretta and how sweet and wonderful she always was to her. George Strait saying, you know, we will miss you so much, Loretta, and her incredible talents. Also, just, you know, thinking about Dolly Parton, who posted that was one of the tributes that really got to me. She said, you know, we've been like sisters all the years that we were in Nashville, which is such a like a special relationship to think about. You know, you mentioned uh, Dolly Parton. and I mean, Dolly Parton came, of course, from a you know, pretty poor background. So did Loretta Lynn, right? Is that a sort of a requisite in order to be a successful country musician? 
I don't think so, but I think that, you know, their backgrounds gave them the ability to tell these stories that resonated with so many people. And it really is like, you know, both of them have remarkable careers. Like thinking about Loretta, she was born, you know, in a really small cabin in Kentucky to the famous coal miner. And when she's 15, she gets married. She has four children, by uh, four of her six children by the time that she's 20. I mean, she had, she lived a lot of life. Is it also something, these songs that kind of get passed down it's like oh you know my mom used to listen to loretta lynn and now uh, you suddenly find yourself listening to it yeah no exactly i mean i think that her music it really it transcends you know the time and there's still you listen to it today and there's so many things that have changed since the 70s but there's a lot of things that women as women that we're still noticing that we're still going through what would you say her legacy is then I would say her legacy is just the path that she carved for all of the women in country music today to be able to say, like, you can tell me that I have to sing about this, but I'm actually I'm going to sing about the things that mean the most to me and are true to me and be vulnerable. And that's what's going to resonate with the audience. Something that you would recommend as a listen or a watch tonight when people get home? Well, I mean, of course, you can watch her biopic, The Coal Miner's Daughter, which was nominated for an Oscar and also won for Best um, Best Actress, Sissy, Best Actress, Sissy Spacek. I would also recommend we have an Odyssey channel on the Odyssey app. If you search Loretta Lynn, you can listen to Loretta Lynn Radio and celebrate her life today. All right, Katie Neal. Katie, thanks. Host of Katie and Company, syndicated nationally across the uh, country stations here on Odyssey. That's in-depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow. 